You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is season four, episode 13. I walk into the small foyer of the historical Candoro Marble Arts Center in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm greeted by a smiling lady wearing a black mask over her eyes. She welcomes me into the space and hands me a mask of my own. I enter a small L-shaped room with a single row of chairs lining the walls, several mirrors in each corner, and a single couch in the center of the room. It's an unlikely scene for an opera, but something about the intimacy of the space and witnessing all of the other masked faces of audience members transports me into a free and open creative space. I hear a small chamber orchestra tuning their instruments in a distant room where I cannot see them. In a few moments, the masked lady who greeted me at the door steps into the center of the room and welcomes everyone to the Nero monologues. The lights are dimmed and the Emperor Nero performed by writer and soprano Sarah Toth, rushes into the room in a fury of violent emotion. Her voice, which is far bigger than the room can hold, spills into the atmosphere, and we are thrust inside the twisted mind of Emperor Nero in the final hour of his life. The following morning, I had the opportunity to sit down with Sarah and talk about the inception of her theatrical production and discover what motivated her to highlight this disturbing and perhaps misunderstood figure from ancient history. I'm Stephen Roach, and this is the Nero Monologues, my conversation with performer and writer Sarah Toth. So I'm really curious because you said, we were talking earlier and you said that you didn't even pursue opera or get into opera until you were 24. Mm -hmm. That's really unheard of for that world. Yeah. Like what happened? Did you wake up one morning (laughs) at 24 and you're like, I think opera is where it's going. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've always been a classical musician, so I studied flute when I was young quite competitively and was trained in really good schools in Europe, where I grew up. And yeah, when I went to college in the States, I joined a choir and, you know, a year and a half in, my choir director was like, oh, you should take some singing lessons. I was singing alto and he's like, I think your voice is higher than you think it is. So I was like, okay, I'll try that. And I ended up double majoring in music, voice, and also sociology. Uh, studying cultural anthropology and um, yeah after college I was like I need a break and so I worked in an office for a couple years and then uh, as my husband was getting his PhD I decided that I would go back to school for a master's and I thought well maybe I'll teach music you know I should just keep studying a bit and I guess I can do voice because that's what I studied a bit in college and yeah so I started this degree and my teacher was like oh your voice actually really likes opera 
I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's see what that feels yeah. like. So it, I took like a year to like get comfortable with the idea that perhaps I could sing opera. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't something I grew up with. I'd, I'd seen maybe one or two operas in my life up to that point. But yeah, opera was not a childhood dream or anything. Yeah. So it uh, kind of snuck up on yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> and so how long have you been doing it now? 10 years. Okay. Yeah. And the performance that we saw that you did last night, you wrote that, right? Yeah, so I, I conceived of the idea and then along the way collaborated yeah. um, with a couple of people. And then I put together a string of poetry and pieces that came from other operas. And I just happened to see a submission for a festival that was taking works in progress. And so I submitted and they said, hey, we don't want to have you for works in progress, but we'd like you to be a feature production in our festival. And I was blown away by that because uh, that was kind of reserved for companies mm. that were bringing a piece in. Wow. So I said yes. <laughs> and then <laughs> figured out a way to make it happen. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I essentially self-produced going into that festival, but in the process... I um, contacted a colleague of mine who's a composer friend and was asking him to use a piece from an art song that he wrote. And then we got to talking and he really liked the poetry that I found to include in the piece. And so I said, well, do you want to write some new music for, for this piece with this poetry? And he's like, sure. This was like, you know, two months out or something from the performance. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. It was pretty crazy. <laughs> and so he started writing really quickly. And I went off to do another performance in Italy. And he was like sending me, <laughs> sending me pieces that I had to learn really quickly before we went into into rehearsal. It was, I still don't know how we got through that. <laughs> wow, what a process. Um, but yeah, the poetry of uh, Nero monologues comes from Jeffrey Lehman, um, who's an Australian poet. And uh, as I was researching the character and the story, his poetry popped up. He, he wrote like this whole book of poetry from Nero's perspective as if he had written it. And it fit perfectly into some of the stories I was wanting to tell about the character. And it was amazing because he lived right in Sydney where I'm based. Um, so I was able to meet up with him and get his permission to use the poetry. And yeah, that was just amazing. It's a really uh, a privilege. Well, what drew you to explore this character of Nero? Yeah, I ask myself that often, actually. <laughs> Why in the world, if I could choose to make a piece, is it about Emperor Nero? So a couple of years ago, I played the role of Nero in an opera by Monteverdi called The Coronation of Popea. Popea was uh, one of his wives, his favorite person. And... So I played this guy and found in my character research that there was a lot more to him than meets the eye. And there was a lot of Christian deaths under his rule, a lot of martyrdom. He was the one who killed Apostle Paul and Apostle Peter. 
Uh, he's kind of known for putting Christians on stakes and lighting them on fire for his dinner parties. And mm. um, yeah, it's it's kind of awful to think of some of the things that is put to his name. But I, I also developed this strange sort of empathy for him. Mm. And I saw a bit of him that might not be evident in some of the stories that are typically told about Nero. Um, one interesting thing is that he considered himself primarily an artist, mm. and he was a sculptor and painter and poet and singer. And, you know, if I know anything about artists, it's that they sometimes want to be left alone to do their craft. And um, he was kind of forced into the public eye by his mom. And I think he eventually then got to a point where he was like, I'm absolute ruler and there's, I'm going to have to, you know, make decisions and kill people who, <laughs> who are opposing me. But he wasn't trained to handle the kind of pressure that he was under mm. as a ruler. He came from a family that was pretty messed up and his mom killed a lot of his own relatives, forced him into marriage with his half-sister and kind of pushed him onto the throne. And he eventually killed her because she was pretty manipulative and uh, even they had an incestuous relationship from the time when he was young. And so, yeah, I just got to thinking about this person who, you know, was forced into places that he might not have wanted to be, um, where he didn't have tools to know how to function as a person, as a powerful, healthy person. And... Yeah, it's just interesting how other people can manipulate someone and then history writes about Mm -hmm. the head of state and blames things on them. But, you know, I I also don't want to forgive or pardon a person completely for their actions. But I do want to say in telling the story of Nero that there's more to a person than meets the eye and there's more to a person than, um, than even history writes about them. And, you know, what is it about a person that makes you who you are? You know, is it a string of actions left behind in your legacy? Is it, you know, who is a person at the core of their heart? Sometimes only God knows that. Mm -hmm. And I can't shake the thought of, could Nero have had a moment of meeting face to face with God and realizing what he lacked and what he needed and what the result of his actions were and could he have had a moment of redemption even i find it interesting that there were people around him in the palace who might have had an influence on him faith-wise. Apostle Paul, for one, was under house arrest for two years in Nero's reign. So Nero didn't kill him right away, but allowed him to live peacefully under house arrest. And there are several accounts of him in historical writings of Nero and Paul having conversations. Mm -hmm. And Nero asking, who is this king that you're serving? you shouldn't serve anyone but me. Mm-hmm. And Paul's like, well, the king I serve is is God. It's Jesus Christ. 
And Nero's like, no, you can't serve any other kings. It was almost like he was trying, he was grasping for control in order to save himself and his reputation. But yeah, I just find that fascinating. Mm -hmm. And there was also an encounter with Peter. And I think there's even a, an account of a dream that Nero has. And a voice is telling him, stop persecuting my people. Oh, wow. And after that point, Nero had a lot of nightmares and a lot of, uh, it was just a really tumultuous time in the last year of his life, at least according to these historical works that I was reading. And some of that was portrayed in the chamber piece that I performed last night. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting too that he was experiencing these, these nightmares and this kind of inner turmoil mm -hmm. from some of the things that he had done in his young life. He was only 30 when he died. Oh, okay. I didn't he's, know that. He's really, yeah, was really crazy, really young. But the other fascinating thing is that he had a lot of cool ideas and he didn't really like bloodshed. He didn't mm -hmm. like the gladiator arenas where they were killing people for, for sport, sport, but yeah. he preferred Greek wrestling. He really liked singing competitions, mm -hmm. which he rigged to win. <laughs> <laughs> Conveniently. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was a huge fan of architecture. There were inventions. Um, he actually had a ceiling that turned and rotated with paintings on it. Yeah, there was just a lot of cool things, a lot of innovations that flourished under his short reign. And he had big ideas for that, for his empire. And he also had ideas for education and for gardening. I mean, mm -hmm. he was kind, he kind of wanted to be this universal man, mm -hmm. but he was like, oh yeah, I also have to run an empire. <laughs> and it's even said about him that he believed that with a good song or a good poem, he could convince an army to not invade. Like wow. he was so convinced in the power of art that it could change minds mm. and i think if he had it his way he would use that to bring peace but wow. it's so interesting the ideas that he had but then the execution of how he ruled was sometimes the opposite of what he yeah. was trying to achieve it's almost like like to me that looks like someone who didn't know how to do something with what he had mm -hmm. and so sometimes i think like what would have happened if some of this stuff from his past mm -hmm. could have been sorted out and yeah. he could have had mentors that helped him become that universal man and mm -hmm. you know he could have been a ruler that brought peace for years mm -hmm. and ushered in a new era of art and education and architecture and sometimes i think what can we learn from his life in order to see that happen in our age mm -hmm. so that we're not getting torn down with the stuff that has been part of our past mm. so that we can be free to create art, to pursue ideas, to have dreams and then go for them rather than being destroyed mm. by the stuff of our past. Yeah. And like, to me, that's tragic where a person is not capable of going after what they actually want to see for, you know, over a long period of time and having that longevity of life and of making things. I don't know, maybe that's too, uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe that's too naive and, and hopeful of me, but. <laughs> yeah, I think it's amazing. I mean, even hearing you talk about him in this perspective, it almost humanizes a tyrannical figure. Mm. It, it humanizes 
someone that's known for the atrocious things that he did, but I think it's really interesting just to think about him in those terms and, mm. to, and to see some of the other things that could have been and what was mm. actually inside of him. And I know just at the performance last night, I could feel the madness of Nero's inner turmoil. You know, it's interesting because as I'm just hearing you talk about Nero and all of this, I just sense in you like this hope, <laughs> this relentless hope that just is showing up where you normally wouldn't even think of hope be, you know, but yeah. it's like, I just sense this hope of redemption. It's so interesting too, because earlier this week, my dad texted me out of the blue and he said, Sarah, I had this dream that there was an alternative ending to the opera and Nero actually knew Jesus and he was like jumping around when he was a teenager and he was so happy and he was so excited. And it was just a dream that he had, but actually reflected some of my own personal convictions in processing this, this story and this person. And and I was like, well, Dad, I've already actually purchased the web domain for alternative endings. So it's kind of funny that you mentioned that. It was just another nudge in the direction of, oh, wow, there's something to be said for a different ending to someone's life. And I feel like that's something that people long for as well. Like, sometimes people feel so stuck in their circumstances that they can only see one path ahead, that they can only see, oh, man, this is going to end just like it did with my parents, just like it did with my friends, just like it did with my grandparents, and I'm never gonna get out of this rut. But what if you had an opportunity to say, no, that's not the direction that I wanna go. I wanna go this other way. And just as an exercise, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rewrite the, my story. You know, it, it could never turn out that way, but I'm just gonna, you know, imagine and see what would happen. Actually, that's a powerful exercise, and it's something that can change a person's direction, a person's course of their life. And so, you know, even though this is just a story and this is a person that lived 2,000 years ago, I feel like there's something to be said for giving people hope to change the course of their life and to change the situation that they are in so that they don't <laughs> end up desiring to end their life because they feel like they have no other option. So yeah, I feel like I am someone who has unreasonable amounts of hope for people. And I can't help but seeing the gold in a person that might not even be showing up yet. And so, you know, maybe that's too naive and too idealistic to think of with a person in history. But as an artist, I feel like I desire to tell a story that inserts that hope into their life and gives an opportunity for other people to also grasp onto that. I was listening to uh, a talk by Jeff Crabtree in Australia and he mentioned something about storytelling that has really stuck with me that when a person goes into a movie theater or 
to see a musical or an opera or a piece of theater. They go into it suspending reality. Mm. They, they suspend their own perception of what is real and what, um, how they see the world in order to take on the perspective of a character. A good story will allow you to relate to a character and step into their shoes and perhaps live for a moment in their reality. And so I feel like as a storyteller, I feel like we have a privilege and a responsibility actually as artists and as storytellers to give access to someone, um, something that they didn't have before and honor their process of suspending their reality to give them something different that might allow them that moment of hope or that moment of perspective. And it's, it's an interesting privilege and heavy responsibility actually, I think as artists that we do have and an opportunity to speak into someone's life where they might not have been interested in, in going there otherwise. Yeah, art has the capacity to bypass some of the roadblocks to get to the heart level, you know? And that's why I even appreciate what you're doing is that it embodies a moment. It's like when we walked into that space, we suddenly walked into a whole different world that it opened up and it allowed us to share your contemplation mm. and in some way to share that hope that you have that mm. kind of motivates even what you're doing. And mm. I know that your own personal faith has been a large influence and a large part of the art that you're making. Mm. And even with our podcast here with Makers and Mystics, it's all about exploring those intersections of art and faith, mm. art, faith, and culture, and how these things influence one another. And so I'm, I'm really interested to know for you as an artist and as a person of faith, how those two things intermingle with one another, how your faith informs your art and how your art shapes your faith. Mm. I think there was a moment in the last couple of years where I realized that I, I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing unless it was for God. And I think there was a moment when I just realized that I couldn't keep trying to create a career in my own idea of what I wanted it to be in my own strength and in my own pursuit and ambition. But I ended up just laying that down and saying, okay, God, I know that you have good for me. I know that you have plans for me. And I know that you also want to highlight parts of me that are, you know, a whole person rather than just this small part of me. And so <laughs> I, I kind of went into a time of almost like hiding in a way. I feel like I was in a desert for a while, but just learning lots of lessons learning lots of character building <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. things. <laughs> right, right. I think most of us have been there. Yeah. And Sean Bowles has a, has a thing where he says that we fall in love with the people that we're, we're meant to be working with and meant mm -hmm. to be interacting with. And I feel like God's given me a huge compassion and love for the people around me and the people that I work with and even for characters in history which is quite odd <laughs> and um, yeah I just have a desire to to create art that's fulfilling 
but also to see God's kingdom manifest here on earth, to see art that is coming from the throne room of God, to like put on supernatural ears and listen into what sounds are coming from heaven and like, like see if I can make that manifest here on earth. And like, I just feel like there's so much richness that we haven't even tapped into. Um, I was reading a book uh, a year or two ago that they were prophesying that perhaps only 1% of the knowledge of what God wants to give us here on earth we've seen. So that means we could be doing nine things 99% better than we're doing now. That just blows my mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, like that's not even the full knowledge of God. That's just what he wants to reveal on earth. Yeah. And so, you know, if God has an intention to show us beautiful things from his heart and beautiful things from his throne room, how can I not pursue that? And how can I not go after that? And um, yeah, I mean, I, I have an internal vision to see revival breaking out in theaters, to see, even if it's not explicitly a God story being told, that his presence would be in the space and in our breath. It's amazing because singing is all about the breath. It's all about breath moving through our bodies to go and vibrate a sound into a space. And if we are breathing in the Spirit of God and breathing out the Spirit of God, how can He not move in people's hearts? And how can He not transform spaces that were perhaps built by um, people with different intentions, or maybe even pe people who originally saw God's spirit in theater and in art, but that's been forgotten. How can we bring that back and allow space for God to move? And that's ultimately what drives me as an artist. And that's ultimately what, if, if I don't have that pursuit first in my heart, I feel like I could just pack it up and go home because it's not worth it for me. It's empty, an empty pursuit. But I also feel like God fulfills the desires of our hearts and the things that we were meant to be doing on this earth. He loves to gift us with the ability to do those. And when we're doing those things, we feel alive. And that, I feel like that's such an amazing gift that when I'm in a creative space with others and bouncing ideas off of each other and, and fine tuning a moment on stage, it's like, oh wow, this is amazing. I love doing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's so amazing how our God loves to place us in the in the things that bring us alive. Yes. But at the end of the day, my heart's desire is to allow God's spirit and presence to be there working through me on stage so that it's I'm breathing him in and breathing him out. The other is backstage with my colleagues, the people that I interact with, the people that I do life with. How do I uh, embody Christ there? And then the third is where that all comes from, in the practice room, in the secret place. That's where I meet God and that's where all of those other two things flow out of. And so those three, it's kind of like the public, the public presence, the 
I guess, interpersonal presence and then the, the lone presence just with me and God. Those are the three places that I embody in my in the course of my life or the course of yeah. my day. And I want those to be all threaded by His Spirit. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics and thank you for creating amazing, challenging, groundbreaking art. Thank you, Stephen. It's such a privilege to have this conversation. Thank you for what you're doing, for highlighting artists and for highlighting ideas and art. It's such a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Music for this episode is provided by Daniel Birch and Lobo Loco. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Sarah Toth and to the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. Tickets are now available to the 2019 The Breath and the Clay Creative Arts Gathering at thebreathandtheclay.com. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Kilns College, offering affordable online graduate degrees and certificates that equip leaders in restorative justice. The Theology, Arts, and Culture track empowers creatives to engage as thought leaders in their communities. Continue to make challenging art, my friends, and don't settle for less. We have only begun to scratch the surface of what's possible.